right about now, everybody who grew up with Windows 95 has a little twitch. That's okay. That's kind of the point of the whole thing. We're introducing a brand new series here at church called God Problems. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a series that's all about those times, those seasons in life where God seems stubborn, where God seems distant, where God shows up, but he just shows up too late. That's next weekend. And then today, this weekend, we look at those times when God is just plain silent. When we need him to show up, we need a miracle, we need a breakthrough, we need something to happen, but on the other end of the line, it's just dead, and God is silent. And we're going to get to some of the answers about some of this, but first I want to acknowledge that this problem, the God problems that we all have, are are way far exacerbated by two groups of people. People like me, for starters, preachers, where you show up to church and you've got a a particular God problem in your life, and and then you come to church and you hear this message, and then there's always like this turn, like at the end of the message, where there's something like this cool story, this inspiring event that took place, this hope-filled future, and you're like, okay, maybe this is gonna be it, and then you pick up the phone on the other end, God is just plain silence again. You hear these stories about like this guy maybe who's got a who's got a son who's like got these medical bills that he can't pay for and he's like maybe I got to rob a bank or something to pay for this and on the way in to rob the bank he slips and falls, the paramedics are on site, they lead him to Christ, and then on the way to the hospital, uh, the whole medical team is led to Christ, there's a nurse there who buys a mega millions ticket on the way home, wins that, pays for all the medical bills of everybody staying in the hospital, including the son who's staying three floors above that bank robber dad. I made the whole story up, obviously, but like, you get the point, and you're like, that would be amazing, that's incredible, and then it's like, why doesn't Why doesn't that ever happen for me? Why don't stories like that ever turn out for me or for people that I know? And and people like me, preachers, tend to make this thing so much worse. But then there's also people like some of you that make it worse. People like you who who have these, I'm going to say, wrinkle-resistant lives. You know the shirts? The shirts that, honestly, they should all be made this way. I don't know why we still have irons. But, but like the shirts that you could, they have the magic fabric in them that you could stuff them down into a bottom of a backpack for a week and like pull it out and it's like perfect. Never any wrinkles in it. It always looks amazing. Some people live lives a little bit like that. Have you noticed? Where like everything is so perfect all the time and nothing ever goes wrong. And then when something finally does happen, somebody calls you and it's like, hey, guess what? I mean, I just ran into something, this big hurdle in my life. And a little bit on the inside, you're like, yes, they're human. And they're like, I slept in too long. What? And I got to Meyer too late, and now there's no parking spots by the door. And you're like, that's your thing? That's your wrinkle? Are you kidding me, people? And they're like, yeah. So I prayed, oh no, oh no. And God opened up a spot right near the good doors. I can't believe it. He answers prayers. Don't you believe that? And you're like, how does God show up for something like that? And then the people with the wrinkle-resistant lives like exacerbate all of the other God problems that are already there in other people's life. And you're like, why does he always show up for other people somewhere else and not me and not my people that need it so bad? We're going to get to some of the answers here this morning, but 
I want to tell you that some of this isn't going to come from a promise in the Bible, even though I think it could. Some of these answers aren't going to come from a psalm, even though that's appropriate, or a proverb, which I think is good and in a way helpful. But I think what's going to be most helpful, at least for me, is stories like this that come from real people in a real time, in a real place, people that I know God loved and cared about, even though he was silent. And I know that because in this one story that we're going to hear this morning, God was actually related to the guy. We're going to go to the book of Mark chapter 6. You can pull out a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and find it. The words are going to be on the screen, but I got to set up some of the context. So you're, otherwise you're going to wonder like who all of these people are and in the, in the ins and outs. This is a good story. I mean, it just has all of the elements of a good story. There's a, there's a hero in the story. His name is John the Baptist. We'll get to him in a minute. He's a quirky guy. And then there's a villain. Uh, There's a whole family of villains, actually. It starts with Herod the Great. He wasn't great. He wasn't a great guy. That's not why he gets that title. He wasn't even all that much of of a great king. He was a great maybe builder or architect, but he liked thinking about himself in terms of his greatness. If there was one element of him that was particularly impressive, it was it was probably how cruel he was. I mean, this is a guy who had two of his wives, three of his sons, and his mother-in-law, because why not, all killed, because he was afraid that they were going to try to try to take his kingdom, which was kind of modern-day Israel. He was afraid they were going to take it from him. Caesar Augustus, who's like the head guy over the Western world at the time, looked at King Herod, this underling king of his in this one particular part of the world, and said, it is better to be his swine than son because that's what a ruthless tyrant this guy was. You didn't want to be close to him. That's Herod the Great. And in true psychotic fashion, Herod the Great names all and labels all of his kids Herod, which is very confusing if you're reading the Bible and you're trying to figure out why this guy is everywhere all the time. He's not. They just shortened it all to Herod. He's got two particular sons that we want to get to first. Um, the first one is Herod Philip. Herod, or sorry, the first one is going to be Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is kind of, kind of take the throne, uh, take the kingdom of Galilee, this area that Jesus did most of his ministry in. Herod Antipas is going to be the Herod over there. So when Jesus goes in front of Herod uh, later on before his uh, crucifixion and resurrection, and it's Herod is referenced, it's Herod Antipas that's referenced in that story. Okay, he's the king. He's rich, he's powerful, he's king in Galilee. Herod Philip now, on the other hand, is uh, he's rich and he's influential because of his family and his name, but he has no kingdom. He doesn't, he doesn't rule over a particular area like his brother, Herod Antipas, rules over. Okay, and Herod Philip, it's important to know, also married somebody, and you, you can't make this stuff up, named Herodias, because that's what kind of family they are. Uh, Herod, Philip, and Herodias have a lovely little marriage for a brief amount of time before Herodias, the wife, 
goes and, and, and makes his visit to Herod Antipas, the king, the brother of Herod Philip, over in Galilee. And she's starstruck because not only does Herod Antipas have influence and have power and have wealth, he also has a kingdom. He's a king with people. And so what's widely seen by the people as a desperate and explicit power play, she leaves her husband, Herod Philip, and gets married to the brother of Herod Philip, Herod Antipas. And everybody around here knows the kind of person that Herodias, the queen now, is. And they see that she's just hungry for influence, for wealth, and for power. But nobody wants to say anything because, after all, she's queen of the place, and she's just as cruel and as a tyrant as all of the other Herods. Nobody wants to say anything except one guy, except this quirky little guy, John the Baptist, who seems to just say whatever it is that's on his mind, no matter who it offends. We've got a value here. We practice truth. John the Baptist practiced truth probably harder than anybody else. John the Baptist, it didn't matter who said it, he would call it out. It didn't matter if he was going to go to the spiritual religious leaders, the Pharisees of the time. If he felt like it was true, he would say, you brood of vipers. That's the kind of guy that John the Baptist was. He's quirky. He didn't live in a city. He lived out in the wilderness. He ate bugs, wild locusts. He wore camel skin, which is probably not like fancy kind of leather boots. It's probably like he found a dead animal, skinned it, and like wore that at night. Like he's a weird dude, but that's John the Baptist. He said whatever it was that was on his mind. And one of his favorite topics was calling out, you guessed it, Herodias for, for illegitimately leaving Herod Philip and marrying his brother, Herod Antipas, as this desperate power play simply to get more influence, more authority, more wealth for herself. And he would just call her out all the time. And you guessed it, Herodias hated it. But the more she hated it, the more he would speak about it, and the more the people would love him for it. Because he's the only guy calling out the, the establishment, the king and queen, on all their stuff. And the people followed him in mass. Herodias hatched a plan. Let's pick it up in Mark chapter 6 in verse 17. For Herod, that's Antipas, himself had given orders to have John the Baptist arrested. He had him bound and put in prison. Now he did this because of Herodias, his wife, his brother Herod Philip's former wife, whom he had married. For John, aren't you glad I set this whole thing up? There's a test later, so keep, keep track of it all. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed this grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to do so because Herod, Antipas, feared John the Baptist and protected him, knowing him to be two things, a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked listening to him. Now, I think like how this goes is that he's arrested, he's, kinda, he's in prison, he's tucked away, but yet Herod Antipas, he likes listening. Even though he doesn't always like what the guy says, he kind of like calls him up and is like, you know, yeah, preach to me. Uh, give me something here. 
And John the Baptist would sort of start off in this like divorce or adultery thing. And he's like, okay, I think we've heard that enough out of that one. What else do you got? And then John would probably talk about maybe the Messiah. His life's calling, in fact, John the Baptist, was to point to the Messiah, to, to point out to the Savior, the Son of God, the hope of the world. That's John's calling. As a side note about John, he had a very important, very well-known cousin. Does anybody want to venture a guess as to who John's cousin was? The answer is always Jesus in church, all right? This little fun fact for you. I heard a story about a little girl at a children's sermon. So the pastor gets all the kids, you know, around and he's like trying to get engagement. And so he goes like, okay, it's a little animal. It's brown. It's got a big fuzzy tail. It likes acorns and lives in trees. And this girl like raises her hand and she's like, I think it's a squirrel, but the answer is always Jesus, right? He's like, well, that's a good, Jesus. we keep Jesus at the center. Hashtag value. Um, John the Baptist made his life's calling to spot and to call out the Savior, the Messiah, his cousin, Jesus. People mistook John the Baptist for the Messiah, and he goes, no, 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 no. He is so much more righteous. He's so much more holy than I am that I'm not even worthy to untie the Messiah, my cousin's sandals. And one time he doubled down on it when he saw his cousin Jesus coming over the hill. He points at him and he goes, there, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how entirely frustrating it is then that this guy, John the Baptist, who's righteous and holy, now finds himself locked away in the dungeon, wondering whether or not he's even going to get out or if he might die here. I think if you're like looking for a spot to read yourself into the story, I think it's worth noting that whatever God problem you came here with or whatever God problem you might go into this week, here's the guy, John the Baptist, who is so good and so holy and so righteous. And yet for all of his goodness and holiness and righteousness, he still finds himself in the basement dungeon of a cruel tyrant king and queen who want nothing than to have him dead. You know, it does something to him. Like I think it does something to all of us. It makes John the Baptist start to, to doubt some of his most like base spiritual convictions. I mean, if you're in that valley, if you're experiencing that God problem and God on the other end of the line, it's just, it's silent. And you start to find yourself questioning some of those like core spiritual convictions and that like, I, I thought I had this thing figured out. I mean, God, why aren't you showing up? You're in good company because John the Baptist is also in that place of saying, listen, I told everybody that my cousin was the Messiah, the son of God. I mean, I saw him do these miracles. Why doesn't he show up? And so John, like I think many of us, he starts to doubt whether or not he had it right. And so he actually when he has some visitors one time, he actually sends some people out, his friends, his disciples out, to go take a question to Jesus that highlights his doubt. 
Listen to this one. This is from Matthew now, chapter 11. It's a different gospel, but the same story. Verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, hang on. Wouldn't that be embarrassing for John to send his disciples? But like when they come up to him and he's like, yeah, go ask Jesus if he's the one, my cousin, or if we should be on the lookout for someone else. He had already like doubled down a couple of times on Jesus being the Messiah. Look, the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet now he sends his disciples out, ask him if he's like actually the one. I just imagine his disciples are like, are you serious? Are you sure that you want us to ask him if he's the one? I mean, you really went in on this. He is the one. But that's the place that he's in. Like he's looking around at his own circumstances, in at his goodness and his righteousness, his holiness. And he's going, maybe I got it wrong because, because my cousin, if he's the Messiah, he would do something, right? And, and, and now I'm getting word that like, I'm in here rotting in prison and my cousin, the Messiah, son of God, He's out there doing party tricks in Cana, turning water to wine. I mean, do something about me, would ya? And so his disciples go out to Jesus. Are you the one, or should we look for someone else? And listen to this clever response from Jesus. I mean, it's, it's going to get a little deep. It's going to get a little weird, but I think it's going to be worth it. Hang with me. Verse 4, Jesus, I think he takes a moment, collects his thoughts, and replies, Go back and report to John what you, see, what you hear and see. Now, he lists six things. If you're a note-taking kind of person or, or a highlighter, it's worth maybe checking out. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy, a contagious skin condition, are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Verse 6, Jesus adds on, blesses anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. Now, it's a little coded and a little strange, but we have the humility to approach a passage like this and be like, if it doesn't make any sense to us, presumably it made something to them then, otherwise they wouldn't have copied it and written it down and passed it around so many times. And the answer then to that is, uh, is this. One of their favorite books of the Bible that they just kept coming back to in the first century was the book of Isaiah. And the reason why they kept coming back to the book of Isaiah is that that was, that was written in a time when the people of God, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, had just been taken over by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom had the Babylonians like knocking on their door, ready to take them over. And then in the in-between time from the book of Isaiah up until that story was written, until Jesus lived, it was the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians, it was the Persians, it was the Greeks, and then it was the Romans who all sort of kept taking over the next people and the next people and the next people. And God's people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, have lived under that oppression, under those different regimes, that many years through all of those kingdoms coming and going. And through it all, it was the prophet Isaiah who said, one day a man is coming. One day God is coming. Hope is coming. One day there'll be a Messiah. One day there'll be a Savior. One day there will be somebody called the Christ who will come and rescue everybody once and 
for all. And they looked with longing for that, for that one to come. And people would come and claim to be the one, but he wouldn't be the one because he'd be put down and put to death. And that'd be the end of the story. And then another, and then another, and then another. And so the people, they looked back on these writings of the prophet Isaiah and says, he's going to be accompanied by, by seven marks, seven traits that are going to confirm the words that he is who he says he is. You know, who, you know what many of them are? The blind are going to receive their sight and Jesus spits on his hands and puts them over a blind guy. That's weird, but he does it. And it doesn't matter if it's weird because the blind guy sees. The, the lame, the paralyzed, are carried to Jesus on a mat and Jesus says, son, what are you laying down there for? That's pretty insensitive, Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Stand up and walk. And he does. A centurion's daughter is dying and Jesus says, she'll be okay. She races from the dead. Like there's story after story and they're just like checking them off the list. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised. Jesus is hanging out on the outskirts of town where the poor people lived and he's like, I've got good news for you. No way, I've got the best possible news for you, all the poor. But in Jesus' response, there was one item of the seventh that he left off the list. In Isaiah, it says that the Messiah wouldn't just do these six things. The Messiah would also release the prisoners from their captives. It's arguably the easiest one to accomplish on the list. And he would, Jesus would. But when John's people say, are you the one? You're his cousin. Or should we look for someone else? The answer that Jesus responds with, I am who you think I am. But John, I'm not coming for you. You're going to stay in prison. Blessed, he says in verse 6, blessed are anyone, is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. Which in a sense is admitting, I could do something. I'd like to do something. It's within my power, cuz. But I'm not going to. And I want you to hang in there in prison. And I want you to remain faithful right up to the end. And I want you to be obedient until what happens, happens. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble, even though they're looking around all the circumstances and they know that God could do something, but God just doesn't do something. If I could take a step back from this for just a minute. And if I could take a step back from walking with some of you in the valleys, because this is not the time to speak into those valley moments when you're in the valley, but some of you aren't there. You will be. I promise you, at some point in your life, you will be in that valley, but you're not there yet. And so right now is maybe a time for some good theology, because you need some perspective on what's about to happen. 
And you need, to, you need to start practicing the rhythms of truth before you go down in that place. Because what's about to happen when you go down into the valley, when life takes an unexpected left-hand turn, when you experience setbacks and loss, what happens is that your world shrinks and you can't see beyond just yourself. And that's okay, that's normal, that's human nature. But what's gonna happen is that you're gonna start to make evaluations and determinations and proclamations on the goodness of God based on your own circumstances. And I want to tell you, don't. Don't do that. I want to encourage you not to evaluate the goodness of God based on what he has done for you lately because two reasons. Number one, it's short-sighted. And number two, it's self-centered. It's short-sighted because we are a, a speck. We're a piece of dust in the, in the history of the universe and in just one person, how is it that this speck of dust that is our lives and our experience set and our wisdom could ever dare to make a proclamation on the goodness of an infinite eternal being? I mean, objectively, it's just short-sighted. And it's also self-centered to think that I, Dirk, one person living in one time, having a few conversations or reading a couple books, actually more like blogs, they're shorter, that I could, I could make a determination based on the goodness and the value of an infinite God. Like it could be that much about just me. It's not. So in the place of, instead of evaluating the goodness of God based on our experience, I want to flip that around. And I'd like to help you begin to, to introduce some of that language to flip that around. And to say, maybe instead of evaluating the goodness of God based on our circumstances, maybe we evaluate our circumstances based on the starting point of the goodness of God. That if we start from the place that the infinite being who humbled himself enough to tell us about himself and that he is good and that he is powerful. Maybe we read into our circumstances and say, yet still now you're God. Yet still now you're good and you're strong and you're powerful. And I don't know why my circumstances are the way they are, the valley that I'm in, why I'm here, but I know you're still good because if I need assurance about knowing how you think about me and how you care about me. I'm not going to look at my job situation. I'm not going to look at my marriage situation. I'm not going to look at my relationship status, my financial status. I'm not going to look at whether or not I have a clear calling in this world or a reason why I exist. I'm not going to look around at any of that stuff. I'm only going to look at the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. Every time I need to be reassured that you love me to death and back, I'm going to look at the cross and I'm going to know you care and you love me and you've got a plan and a purpose and I don't need to know exactly what they are because I know you and I know that your purpose prevails. And I don't, I would love to say that John down there in the valley, he learned that lesson and then he got out, right? I mean, that's the kind of story that we're like, you know, I was down there and God showed me this thing and then like everything turned around and it was better. I would love to be able to share like, and you know, in the next line in the Bible is like Jesus got on, the, got on the line like SEAL Team 6 and he's like, Alpha Bravo Team, go, go, disciples, everybody except Judas, you're in. 
rescue the Operation Wild Locust is a success. Camel skin has flown the coop, like whatever it is. He's out, he learned his lesson, he's gonna do amazing things. Not how the story goes. The story continues. The story continues because the villain Herodias still has a plan. Back to Mark 6, 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. It's his bros, his boys. Verse 22. When the daughter of Herodias came in and <clears throat> danced, she pleased Herod and his, now they're dinner guests. I love that. Uh, like it's church, okay? So I'm just gonna assume it was ballet. That's what she did. She got up there, maybe she did a little floss, right? she dabbed, right? But with, with such proficiency that Herod, I totally, that's gonna be a gif later, <laughs> that was a mistake. She dabbed with such proficiency that the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. He was a little drunk. And he says, whatever you want. Now she's a teenage girl, probably 16 to 18 years old, something like that. And she gets the opportunity, the king says, whatever you want, she, she can ask for anything. What do you think she's gonna ask for? Like a laptop, a Lamborghini, a pony, a new iPhone, like, like anything. She does something that's never been asked for in the history of teenage girls making birthday lists and Christmas lists. She goes to her mom and asks her, what do you think I should ask for? It was hard for Herod to see that move coming in his defense. She goes to her mom, Herodias. What should I ask for, mom? And I don't have to tell you I think as the story progressed, you're going to get the context of what Herodias asks her daughter to ask the king for. In verse 26, the king was greatly distressed when he found out. Because of his oaths in front of his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison brought back his head on a platter and presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. <sighs> That's the end of the story. Like there's not going to be a twist. There's not going to be a, they buried him and a few days later he came back to life. There's not going to be further ministry yet of John the Baptist. That is the end of the story. And I don't blame many of you if you're wondering why you got out of bed on a rainy day for a story that ends like that. But if I could just make one observation about the story and about really all of our stories and all of the God problems and all of the times that God could do something but doesn't and he just remains silent. I would say that what we have in this story at its very heart is a story about how John's plans for his life and God's purpose for what he wanted accomplished butt heads and intersect. And of course we know that when our plans and God's purpose collides, God's purpose prevails every single time. 
Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans of a purpose, of a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Many are the plans in our hearts, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails every single time. If I could look, take a step back from this story and maybe get in the head and heart of John the Baptist a little bit and to ask, John, what was your driving passion? What was the thing that made you tick? What was the reason why you get up in the morning? I don't think it was just about Herodias. I don't think it was about trolling the religious establishment. I don't think it was about all of, all of the repent and the kingdom of God is near. I think the thing in his life that drove him forward and kept him going was his hope to one day be the guy who introduces the guy, to be the one who points to the Savior, to the Messiah, and says, he's the one. The Savior has come. The Son of God is standing here today. And I don't think it was his plan to introduce him that way. But I think that if we could go back to that moment when the order was given and we could have this brief conversation with John and say, this is what's going to happen. They're going to kill you. They're going to take your head. And 2,000 years later, we're still going to be talking about how you weren't the guy, but you were the guy that pointed to the guy. I think he would be the first to say, it wasn't my plan but I'm so glad that's what God's purpose was. So I just want us, like as a community, when we go down into that valley, when we have those God problems, when we beg out and he's silent on the other end of the line, to to have that kind of humility to say, you know what, I don't need to understand the plan, but I trust God's purpose. And in that, we are aligned. You know, the funny thing about the church is that we don't change a whole lot. Like, as the the whole church. Like, we get together on the same day, Sunday morning, doing essentially the same thing, singing songs and reading scripture together and praying, that the people have been doing for 2,000 years. And even before that, for several more thousands of years, before Jesus, we are gathering just on Saturday to sing and to read the Bible, and to pray on repeat. And it took the death and resurrection of God to move it from Saturday to Sunday, but that's another story. That's how much we change. You know, and and that's rough, because for a lot of us, it's, it's, it's tough when church changes all of the time, and the plans change, and the strategy change, and the way of accomplishing things change. And for a lot of you who've been around here for a little while, you've kind of come up through Encounter, and you remember maybe when it was just a handful of families in my living room with the one-person band in the kitchen to spread out a little. And you've been through this church through all these different iterations, and you're going, man, so much have changed. And I'll be the first to admit, the plans around here have changed countless times. But the purpose of the church never will. Jesus gave us our mission when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded them. Around here, we've said that that means bringing people far from God to new life in Christ. It means keeping Jesus at the center. It means doing life together. It means loving where we live. It means multiplying locally and globally, practicing truth and experiencing God daily. These seven things, that's what we do. And it won't change. We will date. 
the plan, but marry the purpose. We will rent the strategy, marry the mission. God's purpose for his church never will change. The plans along the way might. And we'll buckle up, because that's okay. Because we'll say, God, I don't need to understand the plans all the time. I trust your purpose. The best example of this is looking no further than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's on the ground in the garden on a Thursday night, and he knows what's coming is inevitable. He knows that they're going to arrest him. He knows that he's going to lose his life. And he prays with such intensity that Luke, the doctor, the physician, says that his, his sweat started beating up like drops of blood. He was that fervent in his prayers. And he prayed, Father God in heaven, find a different plan. I don't like this at all. I don't want to have to die this way. But in the end, he said, even though I want you to take this cup from me, even though I want a different plan, I don't need to be on board with the plan because, Father, your will, your ultimate purpose is what matters most. And Jesus obediently went to death, even death on a cross. And then, of course, he resurrected from the dead and he called out from this dark world an irresistible epicenter of hope called the church. And this is God's purpose, that we would offer hope and restoration and forgiveness to the world on his behalf. We don't need to know the plans all the time. May we have the courage to trust his purpose. Would you stand up and let's pray to that God together.